to say a warm welcome to those of you who are here with us in the house uh, this morning, as well as those who may be joining us via live stream uh, online. Welcome to you guys as well. We're going to be back in our Love and Light series to the first letter of John this morning that we've been in uh, since January. Excited about kind of kind of wrapping that up this week and next week, and then we'll kind of move on to some some other things. But before we dive into our sermon time this morning, just want to kind of keep something on your radar. I don't know about for you, but it's kind of snuck up on me. We're guys, listen, we're three weeks away from Easter. Isn't that hard to believe? I mean, it's literally just around the corner. You guys know uh, Easter is one of the times during the year where folks that don't attend church, maybe even folks that don't have a faith in Christ, are, are open to coming to a church service. And so let me just encourage you, even now, you got three weeks, start thinking about, start praying about, man, who, who, who is it that I, I could invite to come with me um, Easter Sunday? Maybe it's a coworker, it's a family member, it's a neighbor, it's a friend, it's a classmate, somebody who's maybe far from God, they're unchurched, de-churched, maybe they got church hurt, uh, maybe they don't even believe at all, but might be open to coming to a celebratory ab- event on Easter morning if they were invited by someone that they know and trust. And oftentimes that's the case. And so let me just encourage you, be thinking about who you can invite. In fact, we got these cool little uh, Easter invite cards made up. They're gonna be on the, the communion tables in the back as you exit. Let me just encourage you, grab three, four, five, six. We got plenty of these. And uh, think and pray about who you might invite. Also, just wanna let you know, uh, we're gonna have both Easter services just like we normally do, 915. 11 a.m., but we're also going to have a good Friday service that's going to be a little bit different. Friday evening uh, at 6.30 p.m., that's just really going to be kind of a contemplative service, and so we really just kind of want to sit in the, the weight, the sadness, the pain, the sorrow of the crucifixion of our Savior so that when we regather on Sunday morning, it will truly be a time of, of celebration. And so go ahead and mark your calendars. Good Friday, 6.30, uh, Easter Sunday, 9, 15, uh, 11 a.m. We're gonna have a, a great time. Please be thinking about who you can bring with you. Now, if I could just kind of rewind things back to the beginning of our series. Um, our author, John, is one of the 12 uh, disciples of Jesus. He's likely Jesus' closest friend. Uh, he served as a pastor to the folks that he's writing this letter, letter to in the, the town or the city of Ephesus that's found in modern-day Turkey. And he's writing these men and these women, these boys and these girls, because he loves them deeply, but he's got a particular concern, something that has arisen within the church, and he's writing because he's concerned about it. And that is, there are these false teachers who have sort of arisen within the church. We talked about this a few weeks ago. They were called the Gnostics. Now, here's what the Gnostics believed. The Gnostics believed that everything spiritual was good and everything physical was bad. And so they had this really weird belief that the Christ spirit inhabited a man named Jesus at his baptism and then left him at the cross. And so that led them to deny the deity of Jesus. It allowed them to kind of drift into all sorts of heresies. And the true believers who were left at the church in Ephesus were kind of confused by it all. Right, so they're like, man, the, Pastor John taught us the gospel all these years, and yet there's these other teachers now, the Gnostics, but they, they also claim to be Christians, and they seem very spiritual, but they're teaching a different gospel, and they're kind of like confused about this whole thing. And so John is writing this to kind of clear the air and let them know what the true gospel is. Uh, in fact, early on, John gave us three overarching tests, three overarching tests by which we could know if we're really walking with God. Three tests whereby we could know if we really belong to Jesus. Does anybody remember, this is bonus points, 
Anybody remember from like eight weeks ago the three overarching tests that could, you could determine whether you really know Jesus? There was a test of anybody? Obedience, that's one of them. Student section. All right, st- obedience, what, the test of what? Love, that's two. Students are killing it, y'all. Test of obedience, love, and? Belief. Belief, bam, look at that. We got high school students representing, or maybe middle school, I don't know. Um, that's it, though. So th- those were the three tests, right? The test of love, the test of obedience, and the test of belief. So we said, think head, heart, and hands. Right, so John is saying, hey, if you, if you actually encounter the love of God, if you're actually transformed by Jesus Christ, it's going to affect every part of who you are, right? So it's going to affect your belief system, who you say Jesus is. It's going to change your heart affections, who you, who you love, what you center your life around. But it's also going to affect your hands, right? How you live your life. It's going to affect uh, how you obey the commands of Jesus. So those are kind of the three overarching tests that he opened the letter with. The last couple weeks, we really drilled down on the test of love. And now, as John begins to wrap up his letter in chapter 5, the last chapter of the book, he's going he's gonna to circle back, understandably, to hit on all three of those tests. And so that's what we're going to see this morning. I also want to remind you that one of the main reasons John is writing this book is to assure the authentic, genuine believers of the genuineness of their faith. Right? He, he wants them to know, right? He wants them to know that they belong to Jesus. Now, the flip side of that, obviously, is that anyone reading this who might merely be, uh, let's say, religious or spiritual but doesn't have an authentic walk with Jesus, they would find this book quite unsettling. Right? That's kind of been my goal throughout the series. That's my goal again this morning. If you're here, if you're in Christ, I want you to leave today feeling assured Listen, Christian, I really believe with all my heart that your walk with Jesus ought to be like a warm blanket on a cold winter's night. You can just kind of wrap up in the comfort of that thing. I do not believe that God wants us as followers of Christ living in constant terror and fear of like, man, am I really in? Am I out? Did I say that prayer well enough? Did I mean it hard enough? Like, I don't think that's what God has for his sons and his daughters. And so if you're here and you know Jesus, man, I want you to walk out of here with that assured hope that, man, I belong to King Jesus. I'm his. Now, the flip side of that, again, is if you're here and you think you're in Christ, but you're actually not because you're just religious or you're just spiritual or you just fancy yourself a moral or good person, my hope is to unsettle you today. Not because I'm in a bad mood or because I'm mean, but I, I ultimately want you to find hope, freedom, and life in Jesus. And so that's the goal. Assure the saints, unsettle those who might think they're in but really aren't. So let's get after it. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up. Turn it on your app. Go to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. We're going to cover the first 12 verses of this final chapter, and then we'll wrap it up, put a bow on it uh, next week. As you find your place there, let's stop and let's ask for uh, God's help as we dive into his word this morning. God, we, we ask that you would um, just give us a glimpse of who you are, God. Would you give us a more accurate picture of how great you are? Would you give us the appropriate awe in our hearts and our minds when we think about you. God, would you give us a clear picture of who we are in light of who you are? Help us see ourselves clearly. God, we pray that you would open up these ancient words to us in a fresh and a new way, maybe even if we've read them dozens of times, that you would speak to us in a fresh way through the power of your spirit. 
through these words, God, so that we might walk out of here more like your son, Jesus. And it's in his name that we ask and we pray. Amen. First John 5, starting in verse 1, says this, Everyone who believes, if you're an underliner, go ahead and underline the word believes. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves, underline loves, the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love and obey, obey uh, underline obey, that's the third word that we'll dial in on, obey his commands. Now, we just got, if you didn't notice, an entire recap of the, the whole letter. Three tests right there, right? The test of belief, the test of love, and the test of obedience right there in the first two verses. And I think right out of the gate, what the Apostle John is doing is, is he's giving us the big idea of the entire message. So I'm going to go ahead and put the big idea on the entire screen. If you get nothing else this morning, leave with this. Belief in Jesus equals life. That's what he's after. Belief in Jesus equals life. Isn't that what it says? Go back and look at verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born or given life, been born of God. John is saying very simply, if you, if you want life, if you want abundant life, if you don't want to merely exist, but to actually live, because how many of you know that there's very much a difference between simply existing and actually living? If you want life, according to John, to use his language, to be born of God, it's found in Jesus and Jesus alone. Now, what, what does this abundant life in Jesus look like, though, right? And this is the other thing that he's been unpacking for us throughout this letter. What does it look like when we have abundant life in Jesus? Now, John's going to give us uh, three things uh, that life in Jesus ought to produce in us, okay? So we're just going to go through the list. Three things that life in Jesus ought to produce in the life of a follower, a disciple of Jesus. And again, let me just encourage you, allow these three things as you examine your own life either to assure you or to unsettle you, okay? As you kind of walk through these things, you look at your life, you take self-inventory of your life, look at these three things and either allow these things to assure your heart or allow them in God's love to unsettle you. All right, number one, life in Jesus produces, number one, a fierce love for one another. Go back to verse one. Everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Now, we've talked a ton about this the last two weeks. I'm not gonna belabor it this morning, but we understand this. Listen, if you came from a loving home, loving parents, a loving, good father, the natural overflow of that tends to be that we love our siblings, Right, I have one sister, I only have one sibling, she's two years younger than I am, and I would do anything for her. My sister lives 30, 40 minutes away from here, but she could call me at three o'clock in the morning and say, hey, Chris, get your tail over here right now. I'm in the car, I'm there, I love my sister. And John is saying, hey, listen, if you love the Father, if you have life in Jesus, you'll also love the others who are born of him. In other words, you will love your spiritual siblings. So I'll just ask the same question that we've asked throughout this series. Believer, how are you doing right now loving your brothers and sisters in Christ? Now, don't, don't say it out loud, but if you just kind of rate yourself, scale to one to 10, how are you doing loving your brothers and sisters in Christ? In fact, let, let me just rephrase it a different way. Who are you not loving well that you ought to be loving well? Who's a part of the spiritual family of Jesus? And I think this is just a good reminder for us. John has given it to us multiple times in this letter. Hey, believer, this is the reminder. Make it right. Make it right. 
And if you got a brother or sister and there's conflict, there's wounds, there's tension, so let, don't, don't sit on that. Make the phone call, set up the coffee, send the text message, make it right. Man, we gotta love each other is what John is saying in the spiritual family of God. Like this is actually one of the signs that we have life in Jesus. This is a huge deal. If you have life in Jesus, you're gonna have fierce love for the, the brethren, for the sistren, right? The brothers and sisters in Christ. If that's present in your life, not perfectly, but it's present, that should be an assurance to you. Like, yeah, man, I'll, God, I love, I love my brothers and sisters. Yeah, they're jacked up. Yeah, they're annoying, but I am too, so let's just love each other through it. But if you're like, nah, man, I, I don't. I hold grudges. I push away from the relational table really easy. That's a red flag. If we're in Jesus, we ought to love each other with a fierce love. So it starts with love, John says, but it doesn't end with love. In fact, John gives us a word in verse two that we tend to be less comfortable with, right? We like verse one. It feels kind of warm and fuzzy. The love of God. Yeah, we're loved by God. And then we give that love to others and we all love love. Uh, but verse two gets a little more intense. Look at it. It says this, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and there it is. And what? obey obey his commands so if you follow John's logic this is not on the screens for you but if you're a note taker write it down anyway this is, this is what John is saying love leads to obedience does that make you bristle a little bit inside like it does me love leads to obedience that's what he's saying now again we we kind of bristle at the concept of obedience parents let's, let's talk just for a moment we see this even in our kids don't we I've been a dad for uh, 15 years, got three kids, love them to death. I'm still waiting on the day when I say to them, hey, listen, go, go clean your room, go unload the dishwasher, go, go fold your laundry, and they respond to me, thank you, Father. Thank you, Father, out of the overflow of my deep love and appreciation for everything that you've done for me. It is my delight in this moment to obey you. I'm still waiting on that response. Why? Because they're little sinners who need Jesus. Y'all pray for my kids. I love you guys. I know y'all are out there watching this. Um, listen, we hate being told what to do, don't we? I, and, and my hand's up. Man, I don't, I don't want you telling me what to do. Who are you to tell me what to do? I, I, like, I got that same rebellious thing in me. It makes us, makes us mad. And the reality is that in some real sense, even our, <laughs> as Americans, our entire national fabric is built on not obeying. <laughs> if you think about it, right? 1776, we told our English overlords to take a hike. Then we killed enough of them that they actually left. <laughs> and now we shoot off fireworks every 4th of July just to remind ourselves and the rest of the world how good we are at not obeying. It is embedded in our national fabric, our DNA. And yet, what we see in the Gospels is that in the kingdom of Jesus, there is actually high value on not just love, but obedience as evidence of that love. So, life in Jesus produces not only fierce love for one another, we gotta love each other, guys. But number two, it should produce in our lives what I'll call a delightful obedience. Delightful obedience. You say, well, man, why you gotta add delightful to it, man? There's nothing delightful about obedience. Let me tell you why. Let's look at verse three real quick. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not what? Burdensome. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read that, it kind of gave me flashbacks to the words of Jesus in Matthew 11. I just wanna share 
uh, some of the most hopeful words that Jesus ever uttered, in my opinion. This is what he says in Matthew 11. He says, listen to this. Maybe this invitation is for you this morning. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Just this past week, uh, my wife, Cheryl, was kind of bustling around the house trying to get things ready. Her and the kids were going to go out for some, some outing. And um, I was working at the dining room table, just knocking out some emails or something like that. And she says to me, honey, uh, can you please make me a sandwich? I'm not going to have time to eat anything. Can you please make me a sandwich so I can take it on the go? And I said, woman, can't you see that I'm working here? No, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't. Some of y'all did the ooh. No, I would not be here if I, I did. I did not say that. I, I got up immediately to make her sandwich. And, and no joke, this is going to sound like I'm trying to be funny. I'm not trying to be funny. I, I went and I, and I grabbed the loaf of bread out of the pantry and I opened it up and I picked out the two largest, softest pieces of bread. And then I thought, man, she's going she's gonna to be out for a while. She's going to need some protein. So I put a thick layer of peanut butter on it. I went to the fridge and I got our favorite jam out and I spread it all the way to the end of every single edge of that sandwich. So every single bite would have some of that jam. And then I cut it in half so her little teeny tiny hands could hold it really well. And then I took those two little pieces and I put it in a little baggie and I said, here, babe, here's your sandwich. Now she came back a few hours later, no joke, and, and I wasn't even fishing for a column, but she was like, babe, that was a really good sandwich. I said, darn right it was, boo. Made with love made with love. Now, I tell that funny little story to say this. See, it, listen, it was, not, it was not drudgery for me to do what she asked of me. It was delight. Why? Was it because I was worried that she was going to punish me if I didn't? Maybe a little bit, but primarily... <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. No, it was delight, not drudgery. Listen, listen, here's the key. It was delight, not drudgery, because I love her because I love her. And it's the same thing with God. Listen, guys, when we, when we love him, obeying his commands becomes delight, not drudgery. And so we begin to orient our entire lives, everything from our sexuality to our finances to our time to our affections in a way that maybe seems counterintuitive to the world around us, but we delight in it because we know that our Father loves us and ultimately we know and understand that his commands are for our good. So this is a, there's this delight in obeying when there's love relationship involved. One more thing that life in Jesus produces. Look at verse four. It says, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes. Your translation may say uh, is a conqueror. So we're gonna see that word three times in just this little passage. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has, there it is again, overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that over, there's the third time, who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God? So number three, the, th the third thing that life in Jesus ought to produce in your life is the superpower of overcoming, specifically overcoming the world. Now the Greek word there used for overcome and conquer is actually a Greek word called Nike. Nike, any guesses what major corporation or brand in our culture ripped that word off from the Greek, Nike? Nike, Nike, Nike's biblical, who knew? 
right? For all you people who like Nike. Uh, but it's this idea, it's this idea of victory over an opponent. So like I was study, studying the Greek and, and here's, here's a picture that came to my mind or one of the pictures that came to my mind. was like picture, it's the Super Bowl. If you're a sports fan like me, it's Super Bowl, fourth quarter, team, your team's down by six, right? And they kind of launch a last second Hail Mary. The receiver catches it in the end zone scores a touchdown, they win the game, the crowd is going wild, and the guy just spikes the ball. It's just like total, man, total victory. Like this is the idea of Nikkei, the idea of complete dominant victory over your opponent. Uh, Cheryl and my two daughters, Haley and Karis, uh, left a couple of weeks ago to have some, uh, a girl weekend with some friends down in South Carolina, and that left uh, me and Judah, my son, uh, three days just to eat chicken wings and watch dude movies, and um, it was it was glorious. And so I decided Judah's almost eleven now, so I decided to in- introduce him to uh, really kind of a rites of passage into manhood. And so we watched The Gladiator for the first time with with him. And uh, before you judge me in your mind right now, my parenting skills—he's almost eleven. He's a boy; he can handle it. Okay. Don't send me any emails about uh, you know that movie. And um, so I was introducing him to to The Gladiator. And there's this scene, right? So Russell Crowe is, um, man, super tragic deal, right? Where there's a, the really evil dude gets into power. He's the Caesar, orders the execution of his wife and his kids. So he's just devastated. Then gets sold into slavery. And he's got to fight his way through the Colosseum just in the hopes that one day he could stand before Caesar and get revenge for the death of his wife and his, and his kid, right? So there's a scene where he's fighting in, the, in the, this, this huge arena and he's just going crazy, man just like tigers doesn't matter, huge gladiators doesn't matter. He just kind of rips and destroys through everybody. And then he's standing there at the end and he's the last man standing in this arena and the crowd is just dead silent, right? They're not cheering. They're just like, they're just floored, just floored, mouth open. Like they've never seen somebody so dominant before. And there's this incredible scene where he raises his arms and he says, are you not entertained, right? And I'm like, yeah! Testosterone levels go up as I watch it. Judah, I think, sprouted some facial hair as we were watching it. He's got a, he's got a shave now. And it was just this beautiful, and I just, Nike, okay? That's, now you know some Greek. Nike, a dominant victory over your opponent. A dominant victory. John is going, hey, Christian, in Jesus, you are Nike. You are a conqueror. You are an overcomer of the world. Now, when I was little, when I was young, one of my favorite, some of y'all relate to this, some of y'all won't. One of my favorite meats when I was little was bologna. Anybody still eat a bologna sandwich every now and then? Man, I loved bologna. In fact, my favorite thing to do was to take bologna out of the pack, fry it in a frying pan. Get that thing cooked up just right. Get some white American bread, put some Duke's mayo on it, little American cheese, slap that baby together colon cancer on a plate, but it was delicious. I mean, I, I loved it. But I got older. Listen, guys, I got older, and I discovered filet mignon. Right? And my love for bologna has now been overcome by my love for something greater. Christian, the world once seemed enticing to us until we discovered something better. Until we found something greater. And what John is saying is we now have the power to overcome the world to say no to sin and yes to Jesus. We are overcomers in Christ, conquerors in this world. Believer, you are no longer a slave. 
to this world or the patterns of this world. And what John is saying is we got to learn to live out our identities as spiritual conquerors, overcomers in this world. This is huge news. Again, I hope that for many of you, this is bringing assurance. These three marks are bringing assurance to your heart. You're like, man, no, I don't do any of these things perfectly. These things aren't reflected in my life perfectly, but God, they're there. And if they're not there, I, I do hope that it's unsettling you a little bit so that you might seek out answers and, uh, and, and really find them in Christ. Now, John's gonna begin to turn the corner, shift gears a little bit in verse six. Watch this. He says this. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. These three things agree. Now that's super straightforward, easy to understand, isn't it? We'll just blaze right through that, right? What in the world? Blood, water, Spirit testifying in agreement was kind of new agey type movie. What, what, what's going on here? Uh, I just wanted you to know, historically, this is one of the most challenging verses in the New Testament to interpret, certainly in this book. I just want to give you a few reasonable orthodox interpretations that sound Christians have sort of held to throughout time and, and centuries. I'll tell you where I lean, and then you can kind of decide for yourself. But First of all, before we get there, I want, I want you to know that all this talk in this text about testimony, John is meaning for us to picture in our minds the scene of a courtroom here. And what's on trial is, is really the, the truth claims of Jesus, or we could even say Jesus himself. That's what's on trial here. So there are going to be uh, witnesses, people giving testimony in this courtroom. That's the picture that he's given us. Back years ago now, there was a man named, some of y'all maybe remember him, Bertrand Russell. He was a very famous atheistic uh, philosopher. He wrote a book, Why I'm Not a Christian. And uh, he was once asked by an interviewer what he would say if God was real and he met him face to face. And this is what Russell said. He said, uh, I would probably ask, sir, why did you not give me better evidence? Now, the apostle John, who was actually an eyewitness of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus would testify actually that the evidence is abundant and overwhelming. And what he intends to do is lay out some of that evidence for us right here in this text. So remember, back three witnesses, right? We got the Spirit, we got the water, we got blood. What's that all about? Well, the Spirit, I think, is pretty straightforward, right? It's the Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit always testifies to the Son, right? If you think back to the scene of the baptism of Jesus, right? We see the Holy Spirit descending like a dove, giving evidence, giving testimony to the authenticity of the Son, right? The Spirit of God always points to the Son of God. Let me say that again. The Spirit of God always points to the Son of God. Now, I say that because uh, there are many people in this world who claim to be uh, filled with the Holy Spirit or have a message from the Spirit of God. And let me just say, if it ever points in any other direction than the Son, it may be from a Spirit, but it's not the Holy Spirit. And that's why it's important for us to know. That part is clear. The Spirit, we get that. The Holy Spirit gives evidence to the Son. Makes sense. I even think the blood is pretty clear, right? It's a reference to the crucifixion, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ as a historical witness to Jesus, who Jesus claimed to be. I think that's pretty easy. The third one is where it really gets kind of confusing, doesn't it? Like water. So we get the spirit, we get the blood. That all makes a lot of sense. But what of the water? Some reformers 
back in the day, guys like Calvin, guys like Luther, they, they believed that, that the water and the blood were symbolic for the two sacraments. So baptism and the Lord's Supper, which we're going to celebrate in, in just a few minutes. And so the idea is, hey, listen, when we get baptized, when others are baptized in the church, when we take communion, we are bearing witness to the truth of who Jesus is. It's a solid view. I'm, I'm not compelled uh, to believe that that's actually the correct interpretation, but, but certainly it would be a solid one within the bounds of biblical Christianity. There are others who would argue, no, 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 the, the water is representative of physical birth. Right? Because what's, what's one of the first signs that a woman is about to go into labor and give birth to a child? Her water what? Her water breaks. Right? So throughout time and history, water has always been associated with human birth. So that argument would be like, hey, this is, this is symbolic of the fact that Jesus was not just fully God. He was also fully man, right? He came in a physical body, was born just like we are. So that would be the argument for that one. There's also another argument that would say that, no, 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 the, the water and the blood is actually connected to the gospel account of the Roman centurion. After Jesus dies on the cross and runs a spear through his side, the text tells us what comes out of his side. Water and blood, water and blood. And this argument say this is giving evidence to his life, death, and his resurrection, right? I think that's a solid take. If you want to take, take that position, I think it's solid. I'm most compelled by the view that says the water here actually speaks to the baptism of Jesus. So, so in, in essence, what, what John is trying to do is give us this really comprehensive, beautiful picture, starting with the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry with the baptism, that's the water, Ending with the end of his earthly ministry, death and resurrection, right? That, that's the blood. And then the Holy Spirit who descends on the church at Pentecost after the ascent of Jesus, launching the movement called the church, right? I think that's a compelling case. In fact, if you really want to kind of uh, nerd out on, on Bible stuff, I think there's a great connection here with the book of Exodus where God's people are delivered through what? Through water and blood, right? The blood of the Passover, right? They had to, remember they had to sacrifice a lamb and put the, put the blood on the, the doorpost so the angel of death would pass over. That was symbolic of the one who would ultimately be sacrificed to save all of us, Jesus Christ. So they had to pass in Exodus through the blood and then they came to the Red Sea and they had to pass through what? The water in a baptisms of sort, right? I think this is a beautiful picture of what's happening here. In any case, what John is saying is there are three witnesses that testify to the truth that Jesus is who he claimed to be, the Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. So in summary, on the screens for you, threefold testimony, John is saying the water, the baptism of Jesus, the blood, this crucifixion of Jesus, and the, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Beautiful picture of all these testimonies given evidence of who Christ is. Look at verse 9. He continues with this thought of being in a courtroom, this picture of being in a courtroom. He says, if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his son. Whoever believes in the son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe uh, God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God born concerning his son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his son. And here it is, man. This just highlights at verse 12. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. And just continuing on with this idea of witnesses in a courtroom, I think John makes a great point there. He says, God's testimony is greater than man's. And he's saying, listen, guys, if, if we trust a man or a woman's testimony in a human court of law, how much more should we trust God's own testimony about himself? 
Because his word is greater, his witness is greater. Meaning practically, I think, maybe for you and me this morning, when the world, when the culture around us, maybe when your friends, whoever it is, point us to satisfaction in any lesser thing in this world. Whether it's a bottle or a pill or relationships or sexual experiences outside of God's good design or money or possessions or whatever it is. John is saying when that happens for us as followers of Jesus, we believe God's testimony over man's testimony particularly as it relates to Jesus Christ. We believe that he is who he claimed to be. He is the Messiah. He is the Savior of the world. He is the rightful king of the universe and over my life and your life. So he begins to, to land the plane really by circling back around to the whole big idea that we started with. Belief in Jesus equals life. Belief in Jesus equals life. You know, there's a really famous story you've grown up in church, you've probably heard it before. It's found in John 11, where Jesus has a really close friend named uh, Lazarus, and some messengers bring him word. He's in another city, and they say, hey, your, your good friend Lazarus is sick, man. It doesn't look like he's going to pull through. Like, you probably ought to go back and, and heal him, help him. And oddly, Jesus kind of delays. Like, he's not in a hurry to get back to, to Lazarus and um, he, he actually waits, waits two days. And by the time he makes the journey back to where Lazarus is, Lazarus is not only dead, but he's been dead for four days. Right? So he's been dead a long time. He comes into the scene of great, uh, great sorrow, like people are crying and wailing and weeping and mourning. In fact, one of Lazarus' sisters, Martha, there's Martha and Mary. In fact, it seems like Jesus was very close to the whole family. One of the sisters runs out on the road and, and meets Jesus, and she says to him, Jesus, if you had only been here, if you had only been here, then my brother would still be alive. And then there's this beautiful scene where Jesus goes in, and he actually weeps with them, and he comforts them. And then he goes to the tomb, and people are like, man, no, I, this is probably not a good idea, man. Like, He's been dead for days, right? The King James says he stinketh. Like, don't, don't, open, don't open the tomb, man. It's going to be nasty. He's been dead. Like, he didn't just die last, like yesterday. Like, he's been dead a while. And Jesus is like, no, no, no. Just trust me. Take the, move the stone away. And he calls Lazarus out from the grave. And to everybody's shock and astonishment, Lazarus comes walking out of that tomb, Right? grave clothes wrapped and, and, and all. But right before the scene where Jesus performs this miracle and raises his dead friend back to life, he, he says some really beautiful but stunning words to one of his sisters, Martha. And these words were true back then. I think they're just as true and relevant for us now. And so I want to I read these words to you. This is what he says to Martha as she mourns her brother's death that he's about to raise back to life. He says this, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And I love her answer. Martha's answer is this. Yes, Lord. I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God who comes into the world. And I just want to finish by asking you the same question that our Lord asked Martha all those years ago. Friend, do you believe? Do you believe? 
And I'm not talking about some casual belief. I'm not, not talking about some half in, half out belief. I'm not talking about you're, you're in on Sundays and out Monday through Saturday night. I'm not even talking about some intellectual belief in the gospel. I mean, is Jesus your life? And I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not asking if you live a perfect sinless life because none of us do that on this side of eternity. I'm just saying, is Jesus at the center of your life? Like, can you imagine your life apart from Jesus? Because what John is saying here is he is real life. He is abundant life. And that kind of life is only found in him, friend. That's what John is saying. This is the whole point of the entire book. Life is found in Jesus and him alone. Praise be to God. And we're going to pray and then we're going to take a moment. We're going to celebrate these realities in a tangible way. Right? We're going to take the bread. We're going to take the juice and celebrate Christ, celebrate the gospel. Before we do that, let me, let me pray for us. God, we come to you and we are grateful that ultimately you're a God of love, that you are our Father and because you have loved us well, we now know how to love each other with a fierce kind of love. God, would you forgive us for the ways that we don't love each other that way? For the times where we choose to live in selfishness instead of self-sacrificial love for our brothers and sisters in Jesus. God, would you help us love each other the way that you've loved us? Would you give us agape love, not just for you, Father, but for our spiritual siblings in the family of Jesus? God, would you teach us that in your kingdom, obedience is delight, not drudgery. Help us not look at your commands and feel like we've got to grit our teeth through them and I've got to obey this even though I don't want to. No, no, no. Teach our hearts to sing at your commands. To delight, realizing that everything that we want and pursue in life actually found within the boundaries of your commands. That you don't give us these commands to restrict our joy, but to actually unleash our joy in this life you make our hearts delightful in obeying you, God? Would you teach us, God, to be overcomers in this world, to be conquerors, to be Nikkei? Teach us that we actually have the Holy Spirit inside of us and we can say no to sin and yes to Jesus now. We're no longer slaves to the ways of this world, God. We're conquerors, we're victors in Jesus Christ. Would you continually remind us, would you press our hearts into the reality that life, abundant life, is found in your son Jesus and nowhere else? God, my confession is that my heart is distracted easily. It drifts quickly. I have spiritual ADD. So God, would you focus our our mind's attention, our heart's affection, day by day as we go to your word, as we're led by your spirit. Remind our hearts that joy and happiness and peace and satisfaction is not found in anything the world tells us we're going to find it in. It's not found in relationships. It's not found in popularity. It's not found in social media cloud. It's not found in money. It's not found in sexual experiences outside of the bounds of how you've designed it. Not found in a pill, not found in a bottle, not found in vacations, not found in a dream house, dream car. God, would you teach us, would you constantly circle our hearts back to 
life and hope and freedom and joy is only found in your son, Jesus. God, help us. Help us. We're weak. Help us park our hearts there. Help us park our lives there. For our good, for the good of those around us, ultimately for your glory, King Jesus. We ask and we pray in his beautiful name. Amen.